Man, are you guys having so much fun this morning? Yeah, I felt it, even with that. Absolute amazement. Man, the, uh, the stats from this last couple of weeks have been amazing to me, and I, I just felt led to share a couple of things that have been going on. I want to remind you that we still have um, much summer left. There are still opportunities for you to participate in different things that are happening. Um, but I wanted you to be aware that uh, the Lord has been active and His people have been uh, working all over the city, even in the last few weeks. I, I wanted to give you some statistics, uh, not to puff up Salem Heights, but I wanted you to know there are some amazing things that have been happening. And the response just uh, impacted me uh, every single time I would get the report. Uh, we, we had a birthday party. Uh, remember when we were doing those last summer? We're still doing some of those uh, this summer. There was a birthday party uh, within the homeless community here this, uh, just yesterday. They handed out over 1,000 a, a hot dogs to 650 people. Is that crazy? VBS, yeah. Once again, hot dogs are a measuring tool, but we had uh, people come to Christ uh, we had uh, hearts that were uh, reminded that they have great value, that people see them, uh, that they are important, uh, and they were warmed with the love of Christ. VBS, uh, the final tally Pete had given me in the, the back of the auditorium here just a little bit ago was uh, 270 kids, around 140 volunteers. I, I think they whittled themselves down, uh, 140 volunteers. They stayed strong all the way through that entire week. Uh, normally, you get to the end of VBS, and you see half of a person in their uh, outfit, right? Not this time. These volunteers were running around. I had so many of you uh, that are wearing these shirts say, I loved it. I would do it again. And uh, we'll sign you up right now while you have that fever. <laughs> wake the world this next week. Uh, wake the world. Over the course of the weekend, uh, they're going to be seeing uh, Camp Agape kids, kids who have parents that are imprisoned, and on the following Monday, foster families, 25 boats for Camp Agape, 43 boats for the foster families. They, they have around 70 boats, 360 kids, and 120 volunteers coming this weekend to minister to kids who are desperate to see God's love on the faces of people who would reach out to them. This is a, a game changer for a lot of these families, and if you would like to help out with any last-minute stuff, we'd encourage you to call into the office. We'll get you connected with Vince. Is Vinny, where is Vinny right now? There's our champion right there. Yeah. Vinny, we praise God for what he's doing in your life. Uh, we, we have uh, trips that are going off, and I'll just uh, wrap it up here. Um, Monument has come back. We have Latvia leaving this Tuesday morning very early. Uh, they're heading off uh, to Latvia to be able to uh, not only teach English uh, to kids, but share the gospel with them. It's an amazing opportunity. They have many more kids than they thought they would uh, coming to these camps uh, where they spend time with them in a cabin sharing uh, the gospel, teaching them uh, the gospel, teaching them English with Scripture. So we're going to be praying for them this evening uh, when you come back. Pete's going to be leading that team. Um, God has been active. Amen. Aren't you thankful for that? I got to tell you, yeah. If it was just about getting together and entertaining ourselves and then walking away for the week, this would be a waste. Amen? 
the thing I want to challenge every single one of you is to think about what is an area where I am serving, where I am actively sharing my faith, where I'm actively participating with brothers and sisters in Christ, making a difference. How is it that I am stirring people up to love and good deeds? Ask yourself that because you're a part of our body. God gave you specific gifts. Well, as we uh, transition, we have uh, one of our good friends here, Jim Cece. The smattering of non-applause, Jim. You are that popular with us. <laughs> oh, he even, he even wore his best suit for that. That was amazing. He looks like Pavarotti. You'll see when he comes up. In Jude, it says, uh, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. If there's been something that has been uh, consistent with Jim, in the middle of his friendship, uh, he hasn't taken time just looking back, resting on laurels, or talking about something we've shared in the past, but he has continually been contending for the faith, focused on the Word of God, and encouraging us every single time to make sure that we're getting uh, our truth, not from our own opinion, but from Scripture. Amen? That's been his uh, consistent message to us. So, Jim, would you come up here real quick? Is that your one? There's room for your uh, stuff in there. These are three books that you've uh, been working through sharing with people all around uh, Globally, right? Is that a true term? Sure. All right. The Purity War, Mastering the Scriptures, and The Anger, the Worm, and My Apple. I think that's my favorite type of title. But they can get those back here if yes, they want to. Uh, Jim has been uh, not, is not only a gifted teacher, but these books will be an encouragement to you. And uh, we would love for you to be able to take a look at them. But today, Jim, you've got a message you haven't preached anywhere else. No. Not even to your people. No. We're the first? The test. Man, the test. <laughs> Let me pray, and you go to it. Father God, I thank you so much. Um, we, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us to participate. The fact that uh, we can see um, you at work, but you use us. Father, you energize us. And one of the key places you energize us, our first calling, uh, is to walk our faith out towards you in our family. And I pray as Jim preaches, as uh, he shares from his word, from your word, uh, the truth that you've laid on his heart, mm -hmm. I pray, Father, that uh, you would challenge us, uh, that our hearts would be softened, that we would change directions, that we would hear your thoughts and your ways. Um, Father, that it would pr uh, produce fruit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. Thanks. You just wanted me to yeah. kneel. I, <laughs> well, good morning, family. Good morning to all of you. I bring you greetings from your family at Campus Bible Church in beautiful Fresno, California, where it is 41 degrees Celsius. <laughs> Thank you for bringing the heat up here. I was so excited about coming north and having some cool weather. Thanks a lot. <laughs> It is going to be 106, 107 tomorrow, but you know what? It makes preaching about hell a lot easier. <laughs> so I welcome you. I welcome you. 
My name is Jim Cece. People ask, well, who are you? I'm just a nobody from nowhere. But I serve a great somebody from everywhere. Amen? Amen. That's a strange name, Cece. It's a made-up name. You won't find it. There's only a few of us. My real family name is Chikachi. And because it couldn't be pronounced at Ellis Island, they had some revision that they did, C-E-C, and added the Y, and threw off the rest of that stuff. But my other family name is Capone. And that's more familiar to some of you, because my cousin was the infamous gangster Al Capone. Yeah, I got his belly. <laughs> I got his eyebrows. I got some scars on the face, if you look at closely but I don't have his heart. Because in 1971, God reached into the flock of man and the flock of the Capones and the Chikachis, and he pulled me out. And you know what he did? He made me a part of your family. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God because I've been washed in that fountain and I've been cleansed by his blood. And you know what? I'm a joint heir with you and with Jesus as I travel this place, this sod, I'm a part of the family of God. Amen? And I, and I love that. I love that. And God pulled my brother Brian out first. In fact, I believe today, either in the first, second service, or tonight, the gentleman who started the generation of faith in my family lives in this area looking for a church. I told him about Salem Heights Church, and if he's here, I'll, I'll uh, talk to him later and invite him to come and be a part of my family here at Salem Heights. Because my brother Brian and my brother David and my brother Tony are the first generation of born-again believers. The very first. And I had the privilege of leading Tony to the Lord, kneeling on the grave of my father and Uncle Crook, another uncle we don't like to talk about. And I said, Tony, let's start a new generation where it no longer matters that the blood of Capone runs through my blood. It's now a part of the family of God, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ that's going to be proclaimed for generation after generation after generation. Amen? Amen. And that's why I'm here. Today and tonight, we're going to talk about generational change. So I want you to crack your Bible down the center, hang it left, and find the book of Proverbs, would you please? A book that contains extraordinary wisdom for ordinary life. I'm writing a book, a layman's commentary right now on the book of Proverbs that should be out next year and so forth. I'm excited about that. And in particular, I'm here to talk about how to heal generational chaos because I would imagine that you've got some people like I've got people that are not so good people with your last name and your tree line, if you will. I grew up in ungodly soil until I was 21. But now, because of God's grace and mercy, I live in generational peace. That's why I wrote this newest book called Anger, the Worm in My Apple, as it talks about the history of my family. It talks about two generations, a generation of chaos and a generation of peace. And you make the choice as you walk by the Spirit. The generations of anger and immorality and crime, and I was a little boy that grew up in the shade of that angry orchard. But here I stand before you, having been married for 45 years to my, still my girlfriend, Karen, back there. Hi, sweetheart. 
Amazing. And we have three daughters who are married. They've given us 10 grandchildren. All of them, my children born again, and now my grandchildren, one by one, are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we've had 23 foster children who have also given us grandchildren. We've got a boatload. We're building a generation that don't necessarily have our last name because that's what this is about too. My aging quiver is full. Christina Green officially declared that I'm old. So here I stand before you as an old man, and I'm so pleased with that because my father died at 49 as an old man. He was one of the oldest in his family. I didn't think I would live. There was a contract out of my life at the age of 20. Here I am, 68 years old. Wow. I know I'm old because the other day I lost my glasses that were on my head. I know I'm old because for 20 minutes I was looking for my cell phone while I'm talking on my cell phone. <laughs> I get winded playing chess, I know. And I stand before you and my aging quiver is so full. In Psalm 127, Solomon writes a psalm in which he said children are a gift from the Lord. That doesn't mean they're easy to raise. But this most popular passage has also been probably one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Word of God. Read it with me, everybody. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Okay, everybody means a majority of you. All right, let's do it again. Everybody, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, sadly, that passage has been preached and announced to parents that if you bring your kids to church and bring them to Sunday school, send them off to youth camp, send them off to Bible college, they will never leave their faith. It's not what the passage teaches. It's also been used to make parents think that if their children are not walking with God, it's their part, a fault. Poor parenting skills. I'd like you to raise your hand if you're a perfect parent. And if you were raised by perfect parents who were raised by perfect parents. See, we get to go all the way back to Adam and kick him. Our first parent, so imperfect. Listen to me carefully. We forget the words of Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Put that on your children's mirrors. Because that's the truth. So take out those study outlines if you haven't already, and I want us to look very carefully, word for word, phrase by phrase, precept upon precept of Proverbs 22, 6, filled not with a heart of guilt today, but with a heart of hope. And if you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a sibling or a children's worker or a youth worker, this passage is for you. And he starts out with a simple phrase, Train up a child. Wow. 
See, I remind you that this passage was written 3,000 years ago by, the, by King Solomon, who was the son of a man uh, named King David. You remember him? The adulterer? The murderer? You remember him? Who God called a man of bloodshed, and therefore he could not build the temple? Remember him? But also God called him a man after God's own heart. This tension that we have between flesh and spirit, this tension that we have as parents. So it was with David, the imperfect parent who had an imperfect son by the name of Solomon, who had an imperfect son by the name of Rehoboam. And Solomon is writing to his son who would eventually become the king of Judah. And I want us to look closely at this one passage written for a bunch of imperfect people. And we're going to climb this tree. We're going to sit on a giant limb. We're going to pluck some fruit that are hidden under the leaves of this amazing passage. The first words, train up. The Hebrew word is the word kanuk. Isn't that good? Any Canadians in the room? That's what it means. That's what it says, rather. It's only used once in all the book of Proverbs, only three times in all the Old Testament. And the word means to press. To press on something delicate, to, to dedicate something, to consecrate, to inaugurate, to train up, to push something along a narrow road. You know, like you do children, you've got that broad road of sin and you're trying to push them along the narrow road of righteousness. That's what the word means. Uh, it comes from a root word that means to strangle and kill. No, I'm not authorizing that as a training method for children. But there are some things in, our li- in the lives of our children and our grandchildren that we would love to strangle. We'd love to kill their selfish hearts, would we not? And their stinky attitudes. I believe our grandkids are God's gift for us not sending our kids to the foreign legion. But we still have the applications on file for our grandchildren who are very imperfect. I'm so grateful for Solomon's words in Proverbs 19, verse 18. He said, discipline your son while there's hope, and do not desire his death. There are days. Actually, the word canuck here in Proverbs 22, 6 speaks of a narrow palate, you know, the roof of the mouth. It gives the idea of a, of a horse trainer putting a bit on the roof of a horse's mouth, pressing on that tender and sensitive palate of the wild horse so you can break its wild nature. It's also the word that the Hebrew midwives would use when they would take pressed dates and they would put it on the roof of the mouth of a newborn to start the sucking motion so the baby could nurse on mama. In fact, today you even have that where how many times have you seen a mother stick their baby finger in their child's mouth to start the sucking motion. It's the same word. And some translations of Proverbs 22.6 translate the word as start your child off. Inaugurate them. Dedicate them. I, I like to say launch them. You know, launch them. And that's exactly what we do. In fact, you might even find some English translations... You, playing off an English word to train them as if they're a train, knowing with the idea that when a train is on the track, it's most free. Take a train off the track, 
and it's in bondage to its freedom. So it is with training children, isn't it? How many of you have children? How many have grandchildren? Are there any great-grandparents in the room? Praise God for you. Thank you. I hope I get there someday. Listen to what Solomon said, Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and the reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. A child that's off track brings grief. And so with those ideas in mind, Hebraically speaking, I want to take you through now what the Hebrew concept of training a child was all about. It started with breaking their wild nature. I don't need to remind you that our children are sinners. I mean, they're so cute, and if they weren't so cute, you'd send them off to the French Foreign Legion, you know? They are stinky sinners just like us and just like our parents and grandparents. Listen to what David, you remember him? Do you remember what God said about him, this man after God's own heart? Here's what he said of himself, Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was born into sin. Psalm 58, verse 3, again, David. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Now, maybe you're not so crazy about tattoos, but every one of our children and grandchildren are tattooed on their hearts with the words of Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They are tattooed for life. I taught my children to walk. We did, Karen and I. To ride their bikes, to read, to write, even to drive, you know. Remember that scary day when you handed them the keys and dropped to your knees? <laughs> yeah. I even taught them arithmetic up until about the fifth grade. <laughs> then I had no idea what they were talking about. But there's one thing that our children learned that we didn't have to teach them. And that's how to sin. We didn't have some lessons. My children, my grandchildren were born completely selfish. Right? What were their first words besides mama? And then later on, dada. Much later on. Is me do it. Me. Mine. No. How many of you taught them how to say those words? Of course not. No child of any age in any culture at any time has to be taught to get in trouble. It was a while ago when the Minnesota Crime Commission issued the following report. Listen to this. Secular report. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch. Deny him these and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is, in fact, dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. But that's not new. 3,000 years ago, Solomon wrote it this way in Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound up. The, the Hebrew word kashar, it, it means to tightly and knit. Foolishness is 
tightly knit in the heart of a child, the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. But then the commission went on to say this. This means that all children, not just certain children, all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child will grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, and a rapist. Well, so says the world. Our children can't raise themselves. They need our protection from others, but they also need our protection from themselves. The greatest threat to our children is not drugs, it's not sex, it's not gangs, it's themselves. Yet too many of us have left the discipline of our children to others, to our spouse, to the schools, to the government, to the television, to the internet. How many parents that I know that say, here, watch this. I have things to do. And eventually, to the jails and prisons. Sadly, what little discipline some of us do is often unclear and inconsistent. And even though they'll never admit it, our children, our grandchildren are crying out to us, don't leave me alone. Don't leave me alone to guess what's right and wrong and be clear and tell me what to do. And yes, I'm a kid. I will kick and shove against everything you tell me. And I'll hate you for it. And I might even tell you that. And you'll cry and you'll hurt and you'll think you're a failure and I think I'll, I'll, I'll think I won. But someday, someday, I'll have children of my own who will be just like me and I'll come back to you and say, thank you for putting up with me. Someday. It's a glorious day. <laughs> but take time to consider the simple statements of the very first verses in chapter 1 of Proverbs, and chapter 2, and chapter 3, and chapter 4, and chapter 5. Every single one of them tells you to listen. Listen to your parents. That means we also have to, as parents and grandparents and instructors of children and trainers of young people, we have to give them instruction that's packaged in clear rules and simple guidelines. In fact, the simpler, the better. For example, if you sleep on it, make it up. If you wear it, hang it up. If you drop it, pick it up. If you eat out of it, clean it up. If you step on it, wipe it up. If you empty it, fill it up. If you open it, close it up. That's a pretty good start. And then I add another one. And when you sin against others and God, fess up. Simple rules. You get the point. And to not give our children clear instructions and guidelines, the Bible calls it paradgizadzo. Uh, um, it means to exasperate them to dishearten them. You want to suck the life out of a child? Then don't give them parameters. Take that little train and put it in a field. Children need instruction, guidelines, rules. 
no is a really, really good word for children and their parents. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter said it this way. He said, like newborn babies long for their pure milk of the word of God. Listen to me. Let's go back. How do you connect a child? You break their wild nature. You're creating them a thirst for righteousness. I was looking at this picture, and then I realized I'm in Salem, and you can't drink out of the tap anymore. I had a hotel that apologized for their water. That's never happened before in my life, you know. And so I went to a restaurant yesterday and ordered algae water. She looked at me with eyes about this big, you know. <laughs> but as sinful as they are, children can be taught to pursue righteousness. In fact, it'll carry them into adulthood. I love this next picture. Because that's what we're to look like as well to our children. Do we? Do we? Again, First Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Back to Proverbs 22, 6. He says, train up a child. What is a child? In Hebrew thought, a child is any person of any age from birth to marriage and beyond. It's the Hebrew word na'ar. Now remember, Solomon is writing to his son, and the word na'ar in Hebrew means doesn't have hair on his chin. In fact, it's used of Joseph when he was a young man in prison. In Genesis chapter 37 and so forth. But as long as that person lives in your home under your influence, he's considered a child. In fact, in some of our cultures, you're always your mother's and father's child. I was 19 years old on my way to Vietnam. I went back to visit my mom, who lives in Toronto, Canada. She's about five foot nothing. And um, I was heading off to ship out to Vietnam. And on the way to the airport going back, she held my hand crossing the street. And I said, Mama, you can't hold my hand all the way to Vietnam. And she said, yes, I can. And then she squeezed my cheek. And she said in Italian, your face is so ugly it hurts. <laughs> As only an Italian mother could say that with such charm. How is it we're to train our children, young and old? How is it that we're to stimulate this desire for righteousness that Hebrews called the tzedek road, the righteous road? In fact, Jesus alludes to that in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the wide road and the narrow road, the righteous road versus the broad road of sin. And so Solomon writes, train up a child in the way he should go. And the way is the Hebrew word derek or derek. Any dereks in the room? Because that's where the name comes from. And, and it speaks of a manner and a way of something. For example, Proverbs 30 verse 19 talks about the way of an eagle that flies in the sky. Or the way of a snake that slithers on a grass. Or the way of a ship that sails on the sea. Or the way of a young man in love. 
We've all had that experience, I hope, and how silly we are and the crazy things we do. The way. Psalm 127, Solomon talks about our children as arrows. And he says, how blessed is the one whose quiver, whose arrow holder is full. And so here he's using the imagery, and here I am in Oregon with all of you archers, so I get it. But it's like stringing a bow. You have to know the bow in order to string it. If you push too hard on the bow, you'll break the bow. If you don't push hard enough, you can't string the bow and it isn't useful. And so it is with a child. A knowledge of the bow and the knowledge of the child are essential. Every child is unique. Every one is fearfully and wonderfully made by their creator. Psalm 139, verse 14. Every child has its own bent. Every grandchild, every kid in your VBS, every kid in your Sunday school, every child needs training that's geared to his or her particular character and personality in order to follow the direct, the course, the way that God has laid for him or her. You don't formulaically train a child. If your oldest kid was good at math and your younger kid is good at math, creative writing, you don't push the math on the younger kid. God didn't design them. Maybe one kid can make a three-point shot and the other kid's good at soccer and the other kid plays the piano. Good! You don't force on a child your way because you played the piano or you played soccer or you played baseball. You're going to force your kid the way that God designed them. Some of our children and foster children were visual learners. They, they loved to read. But others were auditory learners. They loved to hear stories and listen very well. Some of our kids were tactile learners. They, they had to touch it to learn it. Some of them were olfactory learners. They had to smell it. I have a daughter who every time she reads a book, she doesn't even recognize she does it. She smells it. The olfactory sense is the strongest memory sense. You know that. It's like saying to somebody, I don't remember your face, but your breath is familiar. <laughs> they motivate differently. For some, a timeout works. And for some, it doesn't. Their little hearts are cursing your very existence, right? Others need strong words, but for some, no matter how much you say, they just don't hear you. And yes, I want to say this very carefully. Some kids need the Board of Education to the seat of learning. <laughs> but it needs to be well-placed and widely, wisely dispensed. I've been a foster parent to too many abused physically. A pat in the back and a kick in the butt aren't far from each other anatomically but there's a world of difference in terms of their effectiveness. Amen? And there are some general things that all of our children need. You guys with me? Number one, they need to know that they're loved and accepted and appreciated. They need that. You know what applause is? It's just a pat in the back close up or far away. So when you applaud, all you're doing is giving a pat in the back. 
Well, if you're close enough to pat them on the back, then do so. Your kids need to be applauded, you know? Little Johnny comes home with all Fs, and you go, wow, what can I applaud? Well, son, at least I know you weren't cheating. They also, secondly, need to know, or thirdly, that there are consequences of, of, for doing evil and rewards for, for living a righteous life. They need to know that their life is about daily choices. They need to know that wisdom is not automatic. You're not going to stick your Bible under your pillow and wake up and become a wise man or woman. Not going to happen. It comes from a personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Solomon said, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You're not going to send your kid to college and have him learn wisdom. Sorry. There are no wisdom degrees out there. Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And, and if you look at the Hebrew phrase for fearing the Lord, my time's running here, but it means to, to trust God, to obey God, and to hold on to God's promises. In other words, my job as a parent, as a grandparent, is to raise their view of God and lower their view of man. Right. And stop this silliness of you can do anything you want to do. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. No, no, no. God can do anything. Trust Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. Hold on to His promises. Now, in the Hebrew mindset, there are two roads, two choices, uh, two ways that children can take. Number one is the righteous road, the tzedek road. The other is the foolish road. And every day of their lives, they need to know that they make choices. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, he says, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. Two roads. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you two roads, life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life in order that you may live, not only you, but you and your descendants. Because the choice is that our children and our grandchildren make today will affect the generations after they're dead and gone. My family, the product of that. Tonight we're going to talk about how to start a new generation. But you know Joshua 24, 15. Read it with me, everybody. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And your kids are going to push the envelope, but they get to. Well, my friends have this. As for me and my house. Proverbs imagines every young person being susceptible to the faces of foolishness. Quickly, the impulsive actions, anger and bitterness, greed and selfishness, immorality and impurity, and a lack of common sense. 
a list long enough to choke a giraffe. Foolishness abounds. Read the book of Proverbs. Ah, but Proverbs also points out that the other side of the road is wisdom calling with all of her facets, all of her attributes. The main Hebrew word is chokmah. Everybody say chokmah. You're going to have to spit a little bit. Chokmah. All right. It means righteous application of knowledge. It means applying what you learn. You know what it also means? It means 18 inches from your head to your heart. Knowledge to application. So I want you to consider the facets of wisdom that children need. It's found in Proverbs 1, and quickly we're going to go through this. Uh, they need bina, a Hebrew word for discerning wisdom. They need the ability to sort out right from wrong. They need tabuna, skillful wisdom, the ability to make a plan using their gifts to do something complicated. Uh, th that's why you give them complicated things to do and guide them. They need orma, the, the prudent wisdom, the ability to cautiously peel away the layers and get to the heart of a problem. We call it peeling the orange. Um, they, they need sekal, the, they need experiential wisdom, the ability to use common sense to face everyday situations. They need medzima, the discrete wisdom, the ability to concentrate on a problem and not get distracted. They need Tushia, sound wisdom, the ability to be stable and efficient and remain on an even keel. Wow, how important that is. And Proverbs goes on. See, the visual image of the entire book of Proverbs is that every day of your life, son, there are two women that are going to try to get your attention. He's talking to his son. On one corner is wisdom, and she's shouting, come, spend the day with me. And the fruit of our union is life. On the other corner is foolishness. Shouting, come spend the day with me. And what she fails to mention is that the fruit of our union is death. Our job is to attract them to wisdom. And training the next generation requires teaching them about the consequences of good and bad choices. Teaching them about the pros and cons of choosing the the, the road to righteousness versus the road to evil. Finding wisdom versus allowing foolishness to control them. Learning to listen versus rejecting counsel. Working toward financial freedom versus living in bondage to debt. Finding good friends versus gathering with those who lead them astray. Choosing a life of purity versus a slavery to immorality. Working on self-control versus letting chaos rule them. Seeking God versus seeking riches. Pursuing life versus pursuing death. You know why? Because you've raised children. And the nature of a child is to walk right up to the edge and hope they don't fall over. And your job is to set the rules back. Don't go near the door of her house, Proverbs chapter 5 says. Verse 8. So the Holy Spirit has time to go, earn, 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 earn. Your kids are going to walk up to the stove unless you say, no, don't go on the tile that's three feet from the stove. Give them room to fail without falling. That's wisdom. Proverbs 1.15, my son, do not walk in the way, the derrick with them. Keep your feet from their path. 
Proverbs 2, 11 to 13, discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the, the direct, the, the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of unrighteousness to walk in the ways of darkness. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 20, so you will walk in the direct of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous, the way of good men. Proverbs 3, verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 10, 29, the way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright. Proverbs 14, verse 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 16, verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. How much more do I need to say about this? You say, well, how long do we do this? Or maybe you're saying, how long is this message? <laughs> Even when he is old. And the word zakan there is, is a word, of, it's so gross. It's, a, it's the image of your chin getting folds. Sorry, don't look around, all right? I'm just telling you <laughs> that your body parts start to droop. Enough said. That's the word. And so if you've got body parts drooping, you're old, Hebraically speaking. The implication is the person that we cannot, we train, becomes old enough to train others. Proverbs 23, verse 22. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Listen to you, me, as a grandfather, to you grandparents. You're not dead yet. You'll be dead when Pastor Justin or Pastor Carl opens the casket, squeezes your cheek, and says, she's dead. <laughs> He's done. While you have breath, you're not just people who play with the grandkids. You were called by God to be equipping missionaries in their lives. That's why you're alive. And if you don't want to do it, then say, God, take me home. You say, how long? Proverbs 22, 6 is also a grandparent's life verse. And, and then notice what it says quickly. He says in verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And this is the passage that's confused and misused and abused. The, the, the Hebrew word sir means to turn off, to turn aside, and to turn away. See, the promise is not that our children won't depart from the faith. The promise is not that our children will always attend church or go off and be missionaries in some far-off place. That's not the promise. Here's the promise, that if we train up our children in accordance with the direct, the way, how? By breaking their wild nature, by stimulating righteousness, by teaching them by precept and example the wisdom of wise choices and the foolishness of bad choices, when you train them according to their bent and personality, they will probably not turn aside from what they have learned. And most likely, they will imitate your training procedures of how you train them. Talk about leaving a legacy. That's why Proverbs 20, verse 7 says this, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. And someday, someday you will hear, your children say, Mom and Dad, thanks. It's a great day. I'm going to continue on with this tonight. 
and talk about how to build a legacy. Are you ready for this? For 120 years following your death, biblically speaking. You come out and join me for that, okay? I want to close with an account of a young man who was to be sentenced to the penitentiary. And a judge had known him from childhood and was well acquainted with his famous father, who was a legal scholar, also an author in an exhaustive study. And he said, as a young man standing before him to be sentenced, Do you remember your father? asked the magistrate. I remember him well, Your Honor. Then trying to probe the offender's conscience, the judge said, Well, as you are about to be sentenced, I want you to think of your wonderful dad. What do you remember most clearly about him? And there was a pause. Then the judge received an answer he didn't expect, and the young man said, I remember when I went to him for advice. He looked up at me from the book he was writing and said, Run along, boy, I'm busy. When I went to him for companionship, he turned me away, saying, Run along, son, this book must be finished. Your Honor, I remember him as a great uh, you remember him as a great lawyer. I remember him as a lost friend. And the judge responded, Alas, finished the book and lost the boy. There is no greater, higher calling than training the next generation. Of all of my ministry pursuits in 45, 40 some odd years of ministry, all the books, all the materials, all the conferences I've done around this globe, there is nothing more important. I have nothing to say to you if I can't point to my children and my grandchildren. I have nothing to say to you, as imperfect as they are. Let it be said, they know the way from grandpa and grandma. They call us pa and grammy. Paul said it this way. As he described his spiritual children, he said, you are our letter written in our hearts. What book are you writing? Let it be your children. Let it be your grandchildren. And let it be the generations to follow. In Jesus' name. Father, we just thank you for these simple reminders. Nothing profound, nothing deep, all of it clearly stated in your word. We don't need to juggle. We don't need to somehow parse Greek verbs and decline Hebrew nouns. We have it clearly stated, our responsibility and the value of training our children in the way that they should go. Give us the wisdom specifically in our context, we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said. Amen. Oh, there's more of God's people than that in here. And God's people said. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's thank uh, Dr. Cece for being here. If you guys come tonight at 5 o'clock, we'll have our third service here in this room. Um, and Dr. Cece will be back. And then immediately following that, we'll have our Lord's Supper service. So thanks for being here. You guys are dismissed.